Welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Missio Day is a family of Jesus joining God as he makes all things new in Chicago. Check us out online at missiodaychicago.com. Psalm 119, 1 through 8. Blessed are they whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are they who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. They do nothing wrong, they walk in his ways. You have, have laid down precepts that are to be fully obeyed. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. Then I would not be put to shame when I consider all your commands. I will praise you with an upright heart as I learn your righteous laws. I will obey your decrees. Do not utterly forsake me. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. I feel like I should introduce myself a little bit more. So I'll say this. Um, I love to write. My least favorite question in the whole world, and I mean this, is what's for dinner? Um, I just don't enjoy cooking. <laughs> and um, I'm an Enneagram 4, and if you're into Myers-Briggs, I'm ISFJ, um, and I love the color orange. So there, now you know a little bit more about me. Um, so I'm going to teach from the Psalms. Um, I started diligently reading the Psalms back in the spring of 2020 when the pandemic hit. Uh, so like a lot of people, I was definitely feeling some, some scared and I was feeling um, isolated. Uh, but, but beyond that, I was really struggling with anxiety and depression. And I read somewhere that the Psalms are a book filled with God's acts of rescue and provision for his people and figured if I was going to derive some comfort from God's word in that really dark spring, I'd find it in the Psalms. And I actually ended up spending the most time in Psalm 119. The theme of Psalm 119 is God's glory as revealed in the scriptures, and it's a prayer of praise for the sweetness and value and delight of God's word. And when I began to read and study Psalm 119, my heart felt forever endeared to the Psalms because it's there that I understood that God's word in my heart keeps me walking in his way, that as I obeyed him, my affections were stirred for him more. Matthew Henry, nice looking fella, um, was a well-known 18th century Bible commentator, and he was introduced to Psalm 119 as a child. His father would have his kids take one verse of Psalm 119 every day and meditate on it. So they would go through Psalm 119 twice in, in one year. And, and he would tell his kids, like, this will endear you to the scriptures, and so he went through Psalm 119 twice a year for I don't know how many years of his childhood. Um, and perhaps, I don't know, but perhaps that's why Matthew Henry loved the Bible so much. And he wrote a commentary that is still used today. George Wishart, who is more my type, um, was the Bishop of Edinburgh in the 17th century who was condemned to death for his faith. And when he was on the scaffold awaiting his death, he made use of a custom that allowed the condemned person to choose one psalm to be sung. And he chose Psalm 119. And before two-thirds of the psalm had been sung, his pardon arrived and his life was spared. So that's like really good time-stalling tactics. Good job. 
to some, Psalm 119 is simply just the longest chapter in the Bible. Um, although, excuse me, although the author can't be confirmed, many credit it to David, calling it his magnum opus, which is like his most important writing. Christopher Ashe, who is writer in residence at Tyndale House in Cambridge, England, wrote a commentary on Psalm 119, and he introduces it like this. This psalm opens for us a window into a world where the people of God love the word of God. It invites us not just to look in through the window as into a strange world, but to climb in it, to enter this world and live in it as we too sing the psalm. So as we read, let us ask ourselves three questions. Do I understand it? Can I feel it? Am I willing to sing it? God's word is a song he wrote to us and for us. And Psalm 119 points us to walk in God's way as we sing it. And we are wise to ask the questions. Do I understand it? Can I feel it? Am I willing to sing it? And we are wiser still to ask him to illuminate his word and give us understanding of it, to teach us how to feel it and help us sing it with our lives. There are 176 verses in Psalm 119, and at least 171 of them mention God's word. Christopher Ashe calls these the word words, law, rules, instruction, testimonies, precepts, statutes, commandments, judgments, and word. Each of these words have their own distinct meaning, but corporately they refer to the word of God. We will do ourselves well to not read the word words as constrictive, controlling, or not even relevant to the times that we live in today, but rather read them as words connected to something life-changing, life-changing for us as people of God. In his commentary, Ash says, these word words are two-direction words whose first direction is grace. Only under grace do they call us to walk the way of the word. These words create and sustain relationship, and that relationship is between us and God. These are covenant words, and this must mean God's laws, rules, instructions, testimonies, precepts, statutes, commandments, judgments, and word were given to us as a gift, as a way of protection, to be a shield and a ground, a guard around us, and to grow us in freedom. Reading any psalm, and Psalm 119 specifically, can really sound repetitive and, and perhaps even pious. And it definitely can make you feel like you're coming up short in your walk with Jesus. So how do we read and delight in the law of the Lord when we are now under grace and the law of love? How can we be comforted by God's commandments and his rules in our culture today? So in order to help answer that, I need to give you a little bit of background so we can better contextualize what God is saying to us in Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is a vital chapter to the Christian walk as we are called to live in obedience to the Lord. The book of Psalms is a collection of five books with each book ending with a brief doxology, which is an expression of praise. Books one to three tend to have more songs of lament, while books four and five contain more songs of praise. And Psalm 119 can be found in the fifth book, a book focused on singing God's praises. Matt Statford is a professor at Ozark Christian College who teaches courses on the Psalms, and he writes that early Christians prayed the Psalms daily to Yahweh God. 
He says, as we read the Psalms, we should also consider how the first Christians would have prayed the Psalms, where they had once only seen Yahweh as the Lord of the Psalms. They were now seeing Jesus take his place on the throne. The songs of praise to Yahweh became the songs of praise to Yeshua, Jesus, as he had come to complete them. The songs, the Psalms became the songbook of the early church in Acts and continue to be the primary source of the language of singing and worship throughout much of the history of the church. The apostles would have heard Jesus praying the Psalms, and when it came time to preach the good news and eventually write the New Testament, they would have used the Psalms for inspiration. No other Old Testament book is quoted in the New Testament more than the book of Psalms. Peter quotes from Psalm 16 in the very first day of the, of the Pentecost, and the author of Hebrews relies heavily on the Psalms to remind us that Jesus came to complete the temple worship through his death and resurrection. Psalm 119 is made up of 22 stanzas with eight verses in each stanza, and it's written as an acrostic, with each of those stanzas characterized with the letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The Israelites had to learn their alphabet, just like we all did. And it's thought that every Hebrew child back in the day of Jesus would have learned Psalm 119 as their first passage. Reciting and writing the alphabet were fundamental aspects of their education, as was learning the law of God, the Torah. Grammar and spelling lessons were as important as learning the law because the written alphabet was the medium through which the law of God was transmitted. So learning the law and learning the written language of God's law were, were bound together. The stanzas with verses one through eight are represented by the Hebrew letter Aleph. There it is. Aleph is the source of the Greek letter Alpha and our letter A and is known as the father of the alphabet. You can see that it's made up of a slanted line down the middle and two arms that extend out. And one is raised toward the heavenly realms and the other to the earthly realms, as if reaching down to touch man. It's a picture of the God-man who is Jesus, who lowered himself and came down to earth to become a servant unto death. When Jesus revealed himself to John um, in Revelation as the first and the last or the Alpha and Omega, he would have said, I am the Aleph Tav. The Aleph Tav is made up of the first and last characters of the Hebrew language, just as the Alpha and the Omega are the first and last characters in the Greek language. In pictograph, which you'll see there, Aleph is drawn as a head of a bull or ox to represent strength or a leader. The Aleph Tav is also the Hebrew character believed to be the signature of Christ found only in the Hebrew Bible, represented by the head of a bull and the sign of a cross. Both character symbols clearly point us to Christ, the Lamb of God, who died for all of us on the cross. See, I hope that somehow you're starting to see that the Psalms are far from being mundane and irrelevant to us as believers in Christ today. So I want to go a little bit deeper and take us through Psalm 119, verses 1 through 8. So let's do it. You guys ready? Show me that you're ready. Okay, you're ready. All right. Verses 1 through 3. Blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. They do no wrong, but follow his way. So here, blameless does not mean to be without sin. It actually means to have integrity, to be the same person in private that you are in person. 
The image of walking according to God's law can prompt us to wonder, what does such a walk look like? And the next 175 verses in Psalm 119 try to answer that very question. What does it mean to walk in the law? The metaphor of walking appears throughout the Psalms to express the totality of one's behavior in in every respect of their life. So to walk in the law is a lyrical way of describing what it means to follow the law in all your ways. According to Psalm 119, this type of walking, choosing to follow the path that God has revealed through the law, leads to a happy and blessed life, which leads us to conclude that walking contrary to the law causes trouble and suffering. When you walk in God's way, it not only blesses you, but it blesses those around you. You become about the well-being of others by looking out for their welfare and reputation, by promoting their holiness, seeking their justice, and lifting others above your own personal gain. Those who walk in God's way and sing his song invite others to do the same. Those who seek him with all their heart are blessed. This is describing the heart of the believer as being undivided. If someone were to have a divided heart, they would have their focus and attention split between God's law and something else. And verse 2 is telling us that true happiness comes to those whose whole heart is dedicated to understanding God's word. And guess what? This is good news. We can ask the Lord for a longing for his word. We can ask the Lord for a longing to walk in his way to give us understanding of his word. Imagine how utterly delighted he would be if we did that as his sons and daughters. It would be like my kids who are all sitting up here in the balcony, kind of not paying attention. Um, It would be like them coming and saying, Mama, we love obeying you and your rules. They make us love you more. Like, teach us more about your rules so that we can love you more and have a blessed and happy life. That will, like, probably never happen, but that's okay. Stranger things probably have happened, I'm sure. So when I think about asking the Lord for help and longing to love his word and his ways, I thought of Matthew 7, 7 through 8. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Jesus commands his followers to ask, seek, and knock with the promise that each act of obedience will be rewarded. In verse 8, he makes it clear that he's talking about prayer, asking from the Father, seeking from the Father, and symbolically knocking on the Father's door. Everyone who asks of God receives an answer. Everyone who seeks him finds him. The door is open to everyone who knocks. And by including everyone, Jesus shows that God's responsiveness to prayer is not based on the goodness of the one who prays, but on the goodness of God. He is ready to respond to the sincere asking, seeking, and knocking of each of his people. Verses 4 through 6. You have laid down precepts that are to be fully obeyed. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. Then I would not be put to shame when I consider all your commands. Do we as Christians obey God like much of followers of other religions do? Think about that. Mormons give two years of their lives before they even start their careers and all that other stuff to knock on people's doors. Two years. 
Jehovah's Witness give, I don't know, I read somewhere it's like up to 15, was it 15 hours a week um, doing the same thing? Muslims pray five times a day, and Jewish people pray three times a day. So however we may disagree with their beliefs, we can all agree that they are devoted to following the teachings of their faiths. So how are we showing daily ongoing obedience to the Lord? God wants our obedience first more than he wants our worship. I'm going to say that one more time. God wants our obedience first more than he wants our worship. What is our worship to him? If we make much of him in this space on Sundays, and the other days we're not living in obedience to him. It's hypocrisy. It's lip service. Lip service means saying yes with your mouth, but saying no in your heart and your actions. It's honoring God with your lips when your heart is far from him. Right here in this sanctuary, we have sung a song called Reckless Love. What these lyrics about God and his love for us, I will not sing it, and my children are all very glad for that. When I was your foe, still your love fought for me. When I felt no worth, you paid it all for me. You have been so, so good to me. You have been so, so kind to me. It, God's love, chases me down, fights till I'm found. God's love for his people is reckless because he chooses us, imperfect, prone to wander sinners, to be in relationship with. And let's be honest, most times our love for him is quite fickle, right? Yeah. Depends on our mood and how our relationships are going and how much money is in the bank account and yada, yada, yada. To put it mildly, we are just not great partners for a holy covenant with a holy God. And singing that song makes me wonder what I have done in turn to show the Lord not just my gratitude to him for his goodness and love toward me, but also my affection for and devotion to him. See, if I can sing those lyrics and do so with no posture of obedience to God or practice of obedience to him, then my worship to him is empty. And it hurts to say that. Isaiah 29, 13, the Lord says, these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based merely on human rules they have been taught. There are those who follow and love their own tradition rather than the word of God. And when they do this, their worship and service to God is in vain. And going back to Reckless Love, there's this other lyric that says, there's no mountain you won't climb up, no shadow you won't light up coming after me. What if we pursued God the same way he pursues us? The imagery of him charging up a mountain, casting out darkness. I mean, it's just that. What if that pursuit of him became an outward expression of our worship to him? See, God loves us in spite of us being fickle. That's the good news. We have unfaithful hearts prone to wander. And he knew exactly what he was getting into because he knows and he sees us for who we are. And in that way, God's love is not reckless at all. And because we, while we were still sinners, he first loved us, we ought to obey him. Verses 7 through 8, I will praise you with an upright heart as I lean 
learn your righteous laws. I will obey your decrees. Do not utterly forsake me. Here we see worship and learning go together. The more we learn about God and his ways, the more we want to worship him. Joel Lamont, um, an associate professor at the Candler School of Theology at Emory University, that was like a mouthful, um, says, moderns typically understand the heart to be the seed of one's emotions, especially romantic love. But the ancient Israelite understanding of the heart would be most similar to our concept of the mind, the seed of our will, convictions, and intellect. So we can understand verse 7 to mean that learning God's law produces straight minds. These minds comprehend the word of God clearly and allow that law to direct their actions. By contrast, a crooked mind, like a crooked path, leads one into trouble. So we see again there are two ways of living, to walk in the way of the Lord or to be separated from him and utterly forsaken, which is to be abandoned. As new covenant people, our place in God's grace is to take our place in Christ Jesus, the Aleph Tav. If we have put our trust in Christ for our salvation, we will not be forsaken and we will not be put to shame. Obeying God isn't just about getting a ticket to eternal life in heaven, but about being restored to him so that we can be in relationship with him. His commandments have always been about growing us into the people he made us to be. Growing up beyond, beyond what the law requires into people who are held by the law of love. Loving him because he first loved us. But how can we be in relationship with him if we do not know him? How can we obey God if we do not read our Bibles? Last school year, my children and I spent the year learning about all the national parks. Um, We uh, watched documentaries, read books, um, just consumed everything national parks. And um, I've never been to a national park. Um, I'm not ashamed to say I'm 43 years old. I've never been to a national park. Um, And if I were honest, up until last year, that was like totally fine with me not to have been to a national park. Um, But that's not the case anymore. Uh, because the more I read about them and the more I saw them and the more I heard about them, the more I felt this longing to go there myself. Um, If you go to the slide, it's probably hard to see, but this is a field of flowers at Glacier National Park. See, I want to stand there. I want to go there. And those are the badlands up there. I want to stand at the lowest point of that and just be surrounded by painted rock. And more than anything, and it's first on my list, is I want to go to the Redwood National Forest and I want to stand at the bottom of those trees and just look up and marvel at just how ancient and beautiful they are. So suddenly now books and um, postcards will no longer do. I, I have to go there myself. I have to experience all of that because God created that. He created that, and I need to go enjoy that for myself. And that got me to thinking about reading God's word and how, as Christians, we we likely live off of postcards. Every time you show up to listen to a message on Sunday, like right now, or read a book on something spiritual, or put on a worship song, or listen to some kind of faith-inspiring podcast, you're getting a postcard from someone else's time in the word of God. 
they sat at the feet of Jesus. They read their Bible. They took the time to be in his word. And from that time, they wrote a song or a book or recorded something with spoken word and shared it with you. Those songs and books and messages are their postcards. It's their way of saying, look where I've been. See what I saw. Here's what's been told to me. Is what you know about God mainly from other people's postcards? Do you spend more time reading and listening to other people's postcards more than you do in God's word? The answer is only yours to know. But if you answer yes, I do hope that more than anything that's said from up here right now from my mouth, that you will remember this. Stop living off of postcards. Postcards are great. They're great. They help remind you of what's there waiting for you. But they're not meant to be the only way that you experience God's word. See, the church today appears to have a lot of enthusiasm for God. Like, it really does. I see it on the blogs and I, all the podcasts that are coming up and all the books that are being written. I mean, there's a lot of enthusiasm out there. But more and more of us have very little Bible knowledge. In order for the fire of enthusiasm that we have for the Lord to burn strong, we, we have to fuel it with the reading of his word. There's just no way to say it than that. I've heard some Christians say they won't read their Bible because they've heard other use, others use God's word to spread hate and oppress others. And Melissa reminded me just this week that the enemy himself quoted scripture when he was in the desert with Jesus, and, and he used it wrong. He, he was wrong the way he used scripture. So imagine that, the enemy, he was wrong. It's not hard to imagine that, right? So, so please, please, Christians, do not let the enemy deceive you into thinking that if you just brush aside reading your Bible because other people have misused it, that somehow that's going to right the wrongs. It, it, it just won't. Don't let the failures and misleadings of others keep you from the infallible word of God and the perfection that is found in Christ Jesus. How will you know how to walk in his ways if you don't read his instructions? How will you navigate living in a world, this world, where good is called evil and evil is called good? And where does your authority come from? The world and your own understandings or the word, the word of God? God's word in our hearts keeps us walking in his way. The world and the people under in it, including us, right? We're, we're under a great deal of pressure. Do you I mean, do you feel it when you wake up? When you turn on the news, there's just like a, a heaviness that just sits on us. And chaos and conflict are everywhere. But to the people of God, this time of pressure can be precious. See, in the same way, a seemingly unlovely rock can yield something as gloriously brilliant and light shining as a diamond when it's put under pressure, so can we, as God's sons and daughters, be formed into the people he created us to be bringing light into the darkness as we walk in his way and sing his word. So you have to be in the word. And when you seek him, you will find him. And when you find him, you will find a reaching savior, the Aleph and the Tav, one arm in authority in heaven and one arm reaching down and holding on to us today. And our response should be to ask, seek, and knock 
so that we may start to understand his word, feel it, and sing it with our lives. Will you please pray with me? <clears throat> Aleph Tav, the great I am, the first and the last, we thank you for your word because it truly is a lamp to our feet and a light into our path. Will you please illuminate your word to us? Will you please give us wisdom and understanding of your word so that we may be obedient to you and walk in your way and love you more? May we find joy and blessings in our obedience to you, God. And if there is any sin that ensnares us or any lie that has blinded us, please make it known to us so that we may repent and break free from those ties that bind us and be restored into this glad relationship with you. Your word tells us that it is living and active. So please form us into a church of your sons and daughters that delights in your laws and instructions, that meditates on them and seeks first your kingdom and not our own. Stir our affections for you so that we may be obedient to you. Lord, so much has changed in these last 18 months. So much of the life that we have known um, has, has been shaken. But you have not been shaken. And you have allowed these things to be shaken to show us just how unchanging and unshakable you are. And we praise you for it, Father. And we thank you for it because you will not put to shame those whose hope and faith is in you. So may you be blessed. May you be loved. May you be lifted high, God, as we walk in your way. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. We love to keep the conversation going. Find a weekly gathering or gospel community in a neighborhood near you. To find out more, check us out online at missiodechicago.com.